Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at verses 70 through 75, but we're going to go back and start reading from the 67th verse. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he, was, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And may the Lord truly bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we dive into this text and then we look at the other texts that it leads to and we try to decipher in our own context, in our own perspective, what this priest from 2,000 years ago is saying, Lord, help us to realize how incredibly relevant it is and how comforting and encouraging it is and how every single one of us need to understand what he's saying and what is behind what he is saying. Lord, that you are a God who makes promises and keeps your promises. And it's impossible, actually, that you would not. Give us that assurance this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week on Easter Sunday morning, you may remember that we talked about the living resurrection, and I was asking you the question, is it alive for you? Is it more than just a dead holiday? Is it something that you actually live out in your life? And, and while we were talking about that, I read you this passage from the 16th Psalm that David said, when he said, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And we talked about what it meant to actually live in the presence of God. Now, Martin Luther coined a phrase that the Reformation picked up, and actually, more recently, Ligonier Ministries, Dr. Sproul's ministry, has picked it up also and made it a very central part of what they say, especially in the Table Talk magazine, and that is the phrase, Coram Deo. And, and even though that is used quite often to talk about living in a Christ-like manner, it actually means in the presence of God. Now, I don't know about you, and, and actually I think if we're honest with each other, this is something that is peculiar and relevant to all Christians. But some questions come to my mind almost immediately when I start thinking about living in the presence of God. At first, I just, how do I know that I am in the presence of God? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that God is watching over me, that I am one of his people? And then when you start thinking about those kinds of things, the enemy starts whispering in your ear, and all of a sudden you have a multitude of questions. How do I know that any of this is true? How do I know I can trust the Bible? How do I know that God will forgive all my sins? How do I know if he's capable of forgiving all of my sins? How do I know if he can forgive 
that sin will cause you to have one in your mind and you carry the baggage around. And so this is a hugely significant question for Christians. But then, even then, if you can come to grips with that, the next question that is even deeper is even more difficult to answer. Okay, if I am living in the presence of God, how is that possible? I'm defiled, I'm profane, I'm a sinner. How is it possible and how can I know that I can live in the presence of God without being destroyed? Because that which is profane cannot live in the presence of that which is holy. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning, and this is primarily a message to Christians because this only applies really to Christians. Don't fool yourself if you don't know Jesus, if you have not given your life to him, if you have not put your faith in him as Lord and Savior. Don't fool yourself and apply the promises that God makes to his people to yourself. But if you are a Christian this morning, I am going to give you solid, unquestionable, undeniable, irrefutable irrevocable proof that everything I just said, each one of those questions that we asked each one of them as God answers them in his scriptures is true. You can stand in the presence of God. You can know that you are saved. All of these things are, are, are absolute truths and the way that I am going to prove it to you irrevocably is through the covenants that God has made with his people. Now, normally when I mention that word, or when I tell you that I'm going to talk about covenant theology, everybody goes to sleep. I've told you before, you think that because you're sitting out there, I can't see you. But I can't. And I know when you're sleeping and when you're not. You have these little light bulbs over your head. And sometimes they're burning bright, and other times they start to dim and then flicker, and then they go out. And that usually happens when we talk about covenants, but I hope you won't do that this morning. Because if you're one of those, and I think we're all there, who has fears, doubts, questions, and sometimes you worry about whether you're saved or not, and sometimes the entire thing begins to crash down on you, and the enemy starts whispering in your ear, if that is you, and I know that it is, then you need to listen. Because listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this. Now, I, I read this is the moment of the word. We're going to go back to it several times. But this is what he said. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul. Would you like a sure and steadfast anchor to your soul? Would you like to have that degree of confidence? Well, he goes on. And he says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You know what he's talking about, don't you? Behind the curtain. That's the Holy of Holies. That's where God is. He's talking about being in the presence of God. The high priest could only go in there once a year. Okay? Now, you are able to enter into that Holy of Holies. So he is talking about being able to live quorum Deo in the presence of God. And that's what I'm going to verify for you this morning. If, you're not, if what I'm going to say doesn't verify it for you, you're just not listening. Okay? So pay attention, please. And I know, I desperately know this, that it is difficult to live quorum Deo in this world, in the culture that we're in, because I know that the culture has a plan. We do have an enemy, and his job is to literally suck the spiritual life out of us, to pull us by any means possible, and he doesn't play fair 
out of the presence of God and to whisper constantly in your ears like he did to Eve. I mean, that that should have given it away. Did God really say you wouldn't die? Oh, you're not going to die. Go ahead and eat the fruit. And, of course, we know the consequences of that. But that goes on day in and day out. It's been happening since you woke up this morning. And so, therefore, I want to give you something that you can put your trust in, your faith in, knowing that what God says is true. Okay. Now, the way we're going to do that, we're in Zechariah's prayer, as I read earlier, or his song, his hymn. And so let me reset the scene very quickly for us. We are in Zechariah's house. It is eight days after his son, John the Baptist, has been born. And it's the time of circumcision and naming. Now, there's a whole bunch of people there, and we know that because this was a very famous pregnancy because Elizabeth and Zechariah are both old, and she's been barren her whole life. And so people from far and wide knew about this so the house is packed with neighbors friends and relatives and there's a lot of drama that has just occurred in this house because it's the naming day and the people wanted to name the child Zechariah after the father and it was Elizabeth who put her foot down and said emphatically no his name will be John Well, the people were taken back, and they decided, well, we're just going to go over your head because we know that Zechariah wouldn't want to name the child this. So they appealed to Zechariah. And then the drama intensifies when Zechariah asks for that tablet, and he writes in the wax, his name is John. Now, the drama is centered around the meaning of that name. That means God is gracious. And we talked about this probably not talking about God has graciously given a child to a barren couple. And certainly it's not talking about John the Baptist because he was anything but gracious. It was about as politically incorrect as you can get. However, his place in redemptive history is what we're talking about. That's what the great significance of his name is. Because he's the one who will herald and announce the coming of the greatest manifestation of God's grace ever. And that is the birth of the child that Mary holds in her womb. And so therefore, that's the drama that has just happened. Now, you know that as soon as he wrote that, his name is John. Well, his tongue was loose because, you remember, he has been mute for nine months because he didn't believe the words of God as presented to the angel. So he's not been able to talk and probably hasn't been able to hear either. But as soon as he writes those words, his name is John, immediately his tongue is loose. And the first thing that he does is start to praise God. And to thank him because he's learned his lesson during those months of discipline. And this song that we're now in the middle of is that praise and blessing that comes out of his mouth. Now, if you're here on Palm Sunday, we looked at the first three verses of this. I went back and read them so that they would be in your mind. But we noticed a variety of things. There are four things mainly. Um, this isn't one of them. But we noticed that the first word was blessed. And that's the reason that the song is called the Benedictus, which is Latin for blessed. And, and, and he's just blessing and praising and extolling God. Well, the first thing that he extols him for is his covenantal faithfulness. He has not forgotten his people Israel. We're going to talk about the fact that Zechariah is pointing backwards. But Luke and the Holy Spirit are pointing us forwards to a new covenant and a new kingdom. 
But then he says, praise God, that he has visited his people. We talked about the double-edged sword that that was. That is a good thing for those who love God, and it's a really bad thing for his enemies. That will continue in our discussion this morning. Thirdly, he said he has come to redeem his people. Well, obviously, that redemption is through the child in Mary's womb. And then he said, and this is very significant for this morning in the 69th verse, he said, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, we're going to talk about that last part, but we talked extensively on on Palm Sunday about that horn of salvation and the fact that it referred to a huge, massive bull, the auroch, which is now extinct, closer to the size of an elephant than a bull and with a real bad attitude. And we saw that as Jesus rides into the city on his triumphal entry on a donkey as the Prince of Peace, bringing peace, shalom to those who are going to trust in him, he's that raging bull who comes down to destroy the serpent, the enemy of the people that he holds in his coils. Well, that same idea is going to be very prevalent and what we see as we go through this text this morning. So with that said, let's jump into the text and, and, and begin to look at three of the covenants. Now, in the after church, which by the way, I forgot to tell, if you're visiting with us after church, we, we have a time where we go deeper into the um, um, whatever we're talking about as far as the sermon is concerned. So the after church, we'll talk a little bit more about covenants, but this morning, all we're going to talk about is three of those covenants. First, the covenant with David, then the covenant with Abraham, and thirdly, the covenant with Christ in that order, even though that's not chronological. So with that said, let's jump into the 69th verse. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's what takes us back to the covenant with David. And and we know it does because there's a play on words there. When Zechariah says he's going to be of the house of David, well, that takes us, that is such an important part of the covenant that God made with David. It it comes out of 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter. I'm not going to ask you to turn back there because I'm only going to give you a couple of verses. But here's what happens in that particular covenant. David is feeling bad at this time. He's king, and he has just brought the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. We know that that trip was full of its own drama. Poor Uzzah tried to steady the Ark, and he died immediately. But now David has brought the Ark into Jerusalem. By the way, as I did mention on Palm Sunday, that is an image of the triumphal entry as well because David was bringing the ark representative of Emmanuel, God with us. Now, God is with his people in Jerusalem. The problem that David notices is that he's just finished building himself this magnificent cedar house there in Jerusalem, and God's God's ark is sitting in a tent. Uh, This is what he says. Talking to Nathan, by the way, he said, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And, and, and this was something that David was struggling with. So he tells Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. 
And, and that's when God responds and says, no, you're not. You're not going to build me a house. First of all, you've got blood on your hands, so I'm going to have your son build me a house. But you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. So there's a play on words, an important one. Because, you see, God's not talking about building David a physical house to live in. He's talking about a house of kings. He's talking about a legacy, a dynasty. And so he says, I am going to create a dynasty through you. That's the covenant. In fact, what he says in the 16th verse of that chapter, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So he establishes and makes this covenant with David. Now, as we go on, Zechariah now moving into the 70th verse says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Now, here's the problem that occurred. Because very shortly after David was made king, well, he dies, of course, and he leaves Solomon the kingdom. And that, of course, was the heyday of the, of the kingdom of Israel. But Solomon became corrupt and apostate towards the end of his life. And then it just went down from there. The kingdom split. And after a faithful forgiving over and over again, God finally says, I've had enough of this. And he brought the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom and the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom. And so it appeared that David's, that the covenant God had made with David was not going to be fulfilled. But you see, God wasn't speaking of that covenant. Now, I mean, all the way up until the time of Jesus, people are still going to believe it. Even his disciples at the ascension are still waiting for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But that's not the kingdom that God is talking about. It is a heavenly kingdom. And so the prophets, after, during the time of the exile, just before, just after, they began to talk about another king, a king that God would bring who would set everything straight. Jeremiah put it this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah puts it this way, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, is David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Ezekiel puts it this way, on that day I will cause a horn to spring up from the house of Israel. And I will open your lips among them and they will know that I am God. Zechariah the prophet, not our Zechariah, says, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And so the prophets began to state that there's a new kingdom coming and there's a new king. Now, Zechariah is seeing that kingdom, that covenant, that prophecy being fulfilled in the child in the womb of Mary and the child that was just circumcised that is his who will be the forerunner of God's redemption. All of that is beginning to come into focus. Now, there's no doubt in my mind at all that Zechariah is an Old Testament priest. He's looking backwards. In fact, notice what he says in the 71st verse, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Well, that's right out of the covenant God made with David. I mean, almost word for word. In other words, this is what God says to David back in this seventh chapter of 2 Samuel. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So this was hugely comforting to a Messianic Jew like Zechariah looking for the coming of the Messiah because he thought, as did virtually everyone else at that time, Seem to not have been paying attention to Isaiah 53. But most everybody was looking for a political and military type of Messiah. And you can see why. Because that is kind of what it seems like God just um, uh, promised uh, uh, David. But you see, that's the backward focus of Zechariah. That's not where Luke and the Holy Spirit are taking us because we know that another kingdom has just come to earth in Christ Jesus. That there is an advent of a new kingdom and we have a brand new king. And the enemies of that kingdom are not Rome and Greece and Syria and Egypt. And, and the person who is oppressing them is not Caesar or Pharaoh. The enemy of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, that he will destroy, is sin. Sin is at the base of everything that's wrong with the world and the fallenness of humanity. Sin and death, of course, as Paul says in the 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to, destroy, to be destroyed is death. And ultimately, Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire. So th these are the enemies now that come into focus. Now, you, you remember the picture of the raging bull come flying down, that I made on Palm Sunday, flying down uh, a Mount of Olives to free his people? Well, that's the imagery that Zechariah is seeing looking backwards, but we are seeing looking forwards because that deliverance is going to be in Jesus Christ. So... To put it back into the perspective of this morning, what we have just learned is that God, without question, has told you through the covenant that he made with David that a king is going to come and he is going to vanquish the enemies of God's people, the enemies being sin, death, and Satan. Okay, that's, that, that's something that you can take to the bank. That cannot be questioned. But in that particular covenant, he doesn't tell us how he's going to do it. For that, we have to go back to an another covenant. And now we're doing this in reverse order because that's the way that Zechariah did it. Because the covenant that explains everything for us, that tells you without question how you know that you can stand in the presence of God and how you know the assurance of your salvation, that came before the covenant that God made with David. So everyone already knew it, so it's not repeated in the covenant that God made with David. So we're going backwards with this, but let me tell you something. When we, when we do, we are going to see something that is positively, absolutely glorious. So look in the 72nd verse. To show the mercy promised to our Father and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our Father Abraham, there you have it. That's where we're going. That's, that is the, the core of, of, of why you can trust and believe all of these things because God has sworn an oath to that purpose. Now, he makes mention of the mercy that is occurring. And mercy, as you know, is undeserved merit. And, and all I want to do, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the after church, but all I want to mention right now is that these covenants, and you're going to see how, 
But these covenants are based in mercy, grace. These are things that God has put in place. It has nothing to do with you. This is the grace and the mercy of God that is bringing these things about. But there's one thing I do want to point on. And that's when he says that he has mercifully brought about your holy covenant. And then he goes on and he talks about the promise that was made to Abraham. So obviously he's talking about Abraham's covenant as a holy covenant. So in what way is it holy? What does he mean by that? Well, in one sense, all of the covenants are holy because all of them are administered by God, as we will see in a moment. But I think that Abraham's covenant, or the, uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, is set apart. And that's what the word holy means. It is set apart from the other covenants. In fact, the Noahic covenant points to the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham's covenant is expanded into the Mosaic covenant, which is expanded into the Davidic covenant, which is consummated by Christ. So if you want to find a pivotal, important point in redemptive history, it is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, I'm going to take you two places here. So I hope you brought your Bibles because they're not going to be on the screen. We're going to go back to Hebrews because I want to read Hebrews from a New Testament perspective. I've already read it to you once, but I want to read it again because I want you to see the explanation that a New Testament writer, the writer of Hebrews, gives us of what's going on in the 15th chapter of Genesis, which is the other place we're going to go. But before we go back and we acquaint ourselves with the covenant God made with Abraham and why it's so important to you, let's, let, let, let's go to that, 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 that passage in Hebrews because really, I mean, he's saying exactly, he's explaining exactly what we're going to see in Genesis, starting in the 13th verse. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's huge. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For, the, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. With an oath. Now, brothers and sisters, in the back of your mind, I don't want it to be in the forefront of your mind because I want you listening, but in the back of your mind, I want you to start struggling with the answer to a question. And the question is simply this What does it mean when the all powerful, omnipotent, omniscient creator God of the universe, who is eternal and infinite by nature, what does it mean when that God swears an oath? What significance does that have? And how solid is that swearing? Okay, you just kind of mull that over in the back of your head. Let's go on with the 18th verse. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtains. We read that earlier. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to resist the strong urge to dive into that passage from Hebrews. 
I just want you meditating on it in the back of your mind because we're going to go to the source now, exactly what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. So join me in the 15th chapter of Genesis, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 15. Now, while you're turning there, while you're moving there, let, let me, I, 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 I don't know if I promised you this at the front end, but I, I'll promise it now. I, my intention this morning is not to put you asleep with a technical discussion of covenants, because I know that that is bound to happen if I do. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of breeze over the top of these covenants. We're not going to go deeply into them, but... I do want to spend just about two or so minutes explaining or defining what a biblical covenant is, and it's as close to being technical as we're going to get this morning, okay? So I promise you, it's not going to hurt too much. Um, one of my seminary professors, I was just so blessed because I, I, I had some of the, the greatest seminary professors just happened to be in one place at one time, um, was O. Palmer Robertson, and he's also a dear friend of Kay and mine. Um, by the way, if you know Palmer, you, you may know that he was diagnosed with cancer and they uh, he's back in the States. Uh, he's been in Africa. But the, the operation apparently seems to be successful and recovery is, um, is imminent. At least that's the last word that I heard. But anyway, he wrote a book called Christ of the Covenants, a great book as far as defining what the covenants are and the relationship that Christ has to those covenants. And most of what I know of covenants is kind of represented in that book, although I also had him as a seminary professor. And, and in that book, he coined a phrase that has since pretty much become a, a standard phrase to define a biblical covenant. It's amazing in its conciseness. It's simply this. A biblical covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. I repeat it. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now, people write volumes about what he just said in a few words. But let me unpack it just a wee bit. First of all, a covenant is a bond. It's binding. Okay? It, unfortunately, in our culture, we tend to use contract and covenant almost as synonyms. But, but a contract's not a covenant. They're different. A contract can have a beginning and an end, and it usually, once it's fulfilled, it's, it's over. If, for instance, I, I contract with you to paint your house, well, the contract would be an agreement. I'll paint your house. You agree to pay me. The sum is decided upon. I go to work. When I paint your house, I present you an invoice. When you pay that invoice, well, our deal is over. Our contract is over. We go our separate ways and may never see each other again. That's not a covenant. A covenant, especially the kind that we're talking about here, is binding. That's the reason we don't talk about marriage as a marriage contract. That's our culture. It's a covenant, right? It's meant to last. And so the covenants that we are going to see in Scripture are binding. They're a bond. And they are a bond in blood. Now, the Hebrew word for covenant is a word bereath, and it means to cut. 
So that's where the phrase, we're going to cut a covenant, that's where it comes from. Now, in just a few minutes, you're going to see what that means. It literally does mean to cut. It means that there's going to be blood spilt as the ratification of this covenant. Now, when it was people, uh, humanity, making covenants with God, quite often there would be a sacrifice. When God makes the covenant, it is something that is bound in blood because there is a powerful, powerful oath that is going to be included as part of this. So it is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now I'm not going to go back into the history of this particular kind of covenant between a sovereign and a vassal because that's kind of the way it came about. This was not unusual in, in the days that Abraham lived. So, but it is sovereignly administered. In other words, it's the sovereign who decides what the terms of the covenant are. Remember, good, I mean, um, Palm Sunday when Jesus was riding into town on the donkey and he's the Prince of Peace and he's bringing shalom, peace with God to the people. Well, that covenant is not up to the people to decide how it's going to work. It is sovereignly or divinely administered. God's the one who says, this is the way the covenant is going to be. You can either accept it or reject it. There's... Good things for those who accept it and bad things for those who reject it when God visits his people. Well, well, that's kind of the very fundamentals, the very foundation of what a biblical covenant is. So with that stated, let's look in our, this passage um, where the covenant is expressed in Genesis 15. Um, Dr. Sproul, who I, I read his commentary virtually every week uh, on, on Luke... He tells a story of how people quite often come to him to um, ask him what his life verse is. Did anybody ever ask you what your life verse is? It's supposed to be a verse that kind of defines your life. When people ask me what my life verse is, I tend to say Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, 21. Um, that normally doesn't go over too well, so I, I would follow up with something like Matthew 6, 33, you know, the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. But Dr. Sproul says with a twinkle in his eye that when people ask him what his life verse is, he replies, Genesis 15, 17. And people say, oh, that's nice, because most of us don't carry in our heads the, that reference, what 15, 17 is. But then they go and they research it and they look it up and they read it. And he says, they, they come back to him with eyebrows raised and said, Dr. Sproul, didn't you, didn't you give me a wrong reference? How could that be your life verse? Well, this is that verse. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Dr. Sproul says, if I was stranded on a desert island and I could only have one verse out of the Bible that I could hold on to, that would be it. And the reason, brothers and sisters, is because it answers all our questions. And that's why this is so important. That's why we're going back and looking at this covenant because this affirms and guarantees irrevocably and ir, um, uh, without question that what God says is true because he sealed it with an oath. Not just any oath, but an oath to himself. 
So let's take a look at that covenant real quick. Now, I might don't go back, but let me just read to you where it sort of starts in the 12th chapter of Genesis. You know, all of creative creation speeds through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and then plop stops at Genesis 12 because that's where this important covenant is. Well, anyway, God makes a promise with Abraham back in the 12th chapter, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so he starts out telling a man who is already getting up in years, his wife has been barren, that he is going to be the father of many nations, and through his descendants all of the world is going to be blessed. And so Abraham understands that. God goes on to include in that covenant not just the, the, his descendants, but also the land that he's bringing him out of the land of Ur to occupy, which is, of course, the land of Canaan, Palestine, Israel and Palestine as it is today. Okay, so that's the covenant God makes with or going to make with Abraham. That's the promise. Now, as the years go on, and Abraham gets older and Sarah gets older and is no longer able to have children normally. Well, he begins to question whether or not God actually meant that, you know, it's going to be my child out of my body that, that is going to be this child. And so he begins to ask God that. And that's when he says now in the 15th chapter, in the fourth verse, he says, or actually just before that, he says, I, I, I get it. You're going to give me descendants through my trusted servant, Eliezer uh, of Damascus. And, and that, again, wasn't unusual for a man who had no children, wife was, uh, was, was barren, that he would take the children of his most trusted servant as his own, adopt them, if you will. And, and those would, that would be his legacy. So Abraham is saying that to God. Okay, God, I get it. This is going to be my legacy. And that's when God says in the fourth verse, this man shall not be your heir. Um, your very own son shall be your heir. It's going to be out of your body. You're going to have a biological son who is going to be your heir. And that is when God starts to prove what he's saying. Look in the fifth verse. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, we've talked about them many times because I go back to this passage all the time. That when he's looking at the stars in an arid climate where there's not a light for 100 miles in any direction, the Milky Way and an innumerable number of stars is before him. God says that's, that's your both spiritual and physical posterity. That's what you're going to have, okay? And this is what I'm promising you. Now... What happens next is probably one of the most important verses. It's not, it's not Dr. Sproul's verse, but it is one of the most important verses in his context as you're going to find in Scripture. In the sixth verse, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, do you read that? Abraham believed God, and it was counted. It was imputed. It was credited to him as righteousness. Was it Abraham's righteousness? Was it his righteousness? Was it anything Abraham did? No. Abraham believes. 
And I'm talking about a complete, a total, a down-to-your-very-soul belief, the fiber of who you are, that kind of belief. But that's what Abraham accomplishes, and the rest is God. The righteousness is God's. The holiness is God's. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now you understand, at least a little bit, how come you can stand in the presence of a holy God? Because it's not your righteousness, folks. It's His. It's His righteousness and His holiness that's going to make it possible. But how do, how do you know that's going to happen? That's why I love this so much. You know, and, and I'm going to talk about contracts here. I'm not using them synonymously with uh, covenants, but just, we're just more familiar with contracts. Contracts normally have conditions and terms, and they have a performance clause. And basically, it says you agree to do what you agree to do, and you agree to do what you agree to do. You decide you'll, you'll paint, and I'll pay, okay? So there's performance in the contract, but then there's a non-performance or a failure of performance clause that is in both contracts and covenants. And this is what happens if you fail or break the covenant. And so God gives Abraham a non-performance clause in the contract. I'm sorry, not the contract, the covenant that he is making with him. Now, this is a little bit gory to our sensitive ears, but it was not unusual at all in those days. Look in the ninth verse. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. And a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. In other words, made a gauntlet. But he did not cut the birds in half. Um, you, think, you think that's gory? Imagine if you were an animal rights person, you know. Ah! Um, but it wasn't that unusual in those days. This is the way that quite often they would make covenants to, to and, and I'm, I'm not talking about this way, I'm talking about long ways. They, they would take them and split them right down the middle, and then they would put one side on one side and the other on the other side. Let me explain what's going on. Let me explain what happened and why they did this seemingly barbaric thing. Because this is the non-performance clause. This is the guarantee that we are going, that this covenant is going to be kept. Because when you would do that, normally you've got a sovereign and a vassal, but you know, here you've got God and Abraham. Um, you would lock arms, if you will, and you would walk through the pieces, those bloody carcasses. You would walk through the middle of them. And symbolically, what that meant was, if I break this covenant... May this happen to me, pointing to those bloody carcasses. If you break this covenant, may this happen to you. Now, granted, it is barbaric and, and gory, but extremely effective. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's a visual. This is going to happen to me if I break this covenant. So guess what? I'm not going to break the covenant. I'm going to keep this covenant to the best of my ability. Okay. So that's what's happening. That's what God says to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to, I want you to go and, and, and I want you to bring these because we're going to ratify this covenant. And with, this is our non-performance clause. Now, what should have happened? What should have happened is 
God and Abraham walked through that together, normally under a normal covenant. That's what would have happened. God and Abraham would have walked through. God, of course, would say, if I break this covenant, this covenant that I am promising that I am going to do for you, this covenant that I'm going to bring about, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. If you break this covenant, may this happen to you. But read verse 12. Abraham's asleep. He's not even there. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Abraham is not going to walk through the pieces. He is sound asleep. And look what God says in the 13th verse. I'm just going to read the very first part of it. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. He goes in and tells them what's going to happen. You're going to have a mighty nation. They're going to go to Egypt. They're going to be slaves for over 400 years. And then I'm going to bring them back. And I'm going to plant them in this land. I am going to redeem them from that darkness. I am going to release them from their slavery. And I am going to bring them back to this land. And I am going to give them this land. And they will be a mighty nation. You can know for certain. Without question. That this will happen. And he sealed it with an oath. And this, that's when we get to Dr. Sproul's passage or his verse. And I hope you can see why it is such an important verse to him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, scholars don't know exactly what the meanings of that are or, or what they represent. They differ in it, but there's one thing that pretty much they agree on. Those are both theophanies. Those are both visible manifestations of the invisible God. That's what a theophany is, just like the burning bush, just like the column of fire. That is a, a, a picture of the Shekinah. Those are symbols. So in other words, we have two symbols that are passing through these bloody pieces while Abraham is asleep. Now, this is what it means. And I hope you get this. God walks through those pieces and he says, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. You know it won't happen. God can't possibly break a covenant because he's God. But Abraham can. Abraham is a sinful, fallen human being, just like the rest of us. All of his descendants are just like him. We're all sinners. So Abraham can break this covenant. So God says, on the one hand, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. If you, Abraham, or his descendants break this covenant, may this happen to me. God says. He guarantees it with an oath upon Himself. First time I ever had that explained to me, I was sitting in Dr. Robertson's Old Testament theology class. Oh my goodness, did a light bulb go on for me. All of a sudden I recognized what the significance of it was. And as I began to understand what it meant at that precise moment, Dr. Robertson says, at the end of those bloody carcasses is the cross. And the bloody corpse 
that is paying the penalty for the breaking of that covenant is not your bloody corpse. It's Christ being taken down from that, that, that cross and being put into the tomb. At the end of this gauntlet of carcasses is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you understand what that means now. And I hope you understand something. That when God said, I will send my son and he will die on a cross to pay for your sins. That he swore it with an oath. What does it mean? When the creator, infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God swears an oath. It means it's irrevocable. What it means, brothers and sisters, is that it is impossible. It is beyond the realm of possibility for any of the promises that God has sworn an oath to to ever be broken. That means that your salvation is secure. That means that you can stand in the presence of a holy God. That means that all this chatter that goes on in your ear that causes doubts and fears and wonders, that's all the chatter of an enemy who wants you to lose faith. God has told you without question, undeniably, unquestionably, you cannot possibly believe that I would break a covenant that I swore with an oath upon myself. And that's why I say I'm going to, I hope that convinces you. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any more certain than that. But we're not finished. I mean, it's like Zechariah is just, just warming up, you know. Because he gives us the way it works by taking us back to Abraham's covenant. But then he's going to show us the result. Look at what he says now in the end of the 73rd verse through the 75th. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, once again, there's no doubt in my mind that Zechariah is looking backwards. Uh, I have no question that he's looking backwards and he is seeing that, you know, you're going to take care of our enemies and we're going to be able to worship without fear. I mean, they have been under the thumb of some kind of an oppressor for hundreds of years whether it was Greece or Egypt or Assyria or um, Romans. They have seen statues of Zeus put in their um, temple. They have seen laws declared that they could no longer worship Yahweh. They have seen Pilate himself bring images of, of Caesar, parade him around town and present him as a god. They have seen such corruption and they have been persecuted for their faith. But now when the king comes... When the kingdom comes, we can serve him in, without any fear in righteousness and holiness for all of our days. But that's Zechariah's perspective. That's looking backwards. Luke and the Holy Spirit are looking forwards. Because I will remind you something, brothers and sisters. As I said earlier, the enemies of the kingdom are not Pharaoh, not Caesar, not Rome or Greece or anything of this world. The enemies of the kingdom are sin and death and Satan. And God told Abraham, know for certain, know for certain 
that I, and I'm going to seal it with an oath, but know for certain that I am going to redeem you from slavery. I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt, your descendants, and I am going to bring you into a promised land. You can depend on that with everything in your being because I swore it with an oath to myself. And so now that same oath, but not to Egypt, not to Pharaoh, but to sin and death and Satan. Because when Jesus sets us free from that which binds us. It is not the governments over us. It is the sin that controls us. He says in the 8th chapter of John, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You know, Remember what he said next? When the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. And that, brothers and sisters, has been Guaranteed with an oath. But, but then Zechariah says, so that we can serve you without fear. Who do you think he means? Now, again, Zechariah's looking backwards, so I don't, I don't think that he knows what he's saying or what the Holy Spirit is saying through him. But who, who can we serve today without fear? Are we afraid of a government? Are we afraid of another country? Are we afraid of persecution? Are we afraid of the culture? Jesus says, don't fear the ones who can kill the body. Fear the one who can send body and soul to hell. That's the one you fear. But you see what Zechariah is saying. Now, because of the king, because of the kingdom, because of the oath that God made to Abraham, because of that smoking pot and that burning um, torch that goes through those pieces, because of the cross at the end of that gauntlet, because of all of that, now we can serve God without fear. Fear of who? Fear of God. Fear of His holiness, fear of His wrath at our sinfulness, fear of condemnation, fear of retribution. All of that is gone. None of that has to be dealt with anymore because you've been set free by the Son. And God swore it with an oath. So what are you worried about? Why are you fearing? Why do you allow the talk and the chatter of the enemy to sway you? Why does it cause you angst? I want to leave you with two things. One, a principle, kind of a harsh one, but secondly, an image. The principle is simply this. This is such, and it's not harsh in one sense, it is in another. This is such a binding statement. Such a binding covenant that if God would swear something with an oath and it were not to come to truth, if it were not come to come to pass, then there is no God. And we are lost in our sins. And we are cosmic accidents. Let me repeat that. If God swears something with an oath... And, and then it, it were not to happen, or it wasn't something that was irrefutable and irrevocable and unquestionable and solid. If it were not an anchor for your soul, then if that could possibly happen, there is no God. Because, as Hebrews says, it's impossible for him to lie. So you have to realize something. 
Your salvation is so secure. And it's not secure because of your belief. It's secure because of a covenant that God made with a Bedouin shepherd 4,000 years ago. It is secure because the smoking pot and the flaming torch went through the pieces. And that's the reason Dr. Sproul holds that as his life verse. So what does it mean, brothers and sisters, when God swears an oath? Well, it means he keeps his promise. And what I am reminded of is an image that he gives us of that promise. From Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God and not to us. We throw our crowns at the foot of that throne. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is what happens when God swears an oath. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your inexplicable redemption. What an extravagant redemption. What an extravagant salvation that you have brought upon us. The very fact that it is merciful means that not a single one of us deserves it. No one does. But once again, Lord, I would lay before you a request, a prayer, a, a, a plea. That those who don't know you, those who are outside of the covenant would recognize that there's no hope outside of this covenant. Inside, there's nothing but hope. Inside, there's absolutely no possibility that what you have promised us would not be true. Outside, there is no hope by definition. And Lord, I pray that you and your mercy would reach out to their souls and bring them inside to a relationship with you so that they might be one of those that you walked through those pieces for, a smoking pot and a flaming torch. In Christ's name we pray, amen.